All Bones Considered, podcast number seven, November 2019. Play ball. Harry Wright, Ben Scheib, Al Reach, and Harry Callis. Cemetery is a National Historic Landmark, an Arboretum, a Sculpture Garden, a Nature Preserve, and an Active Cemetery in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It opened in 1836 and remains a popular visiting spot for thousands of people every year. Its sister cemetery, West Laurel Hill Cemetery, located across the Schuylkill River in Balakinwood, was founded in 1869 and it has a history and a population of its own. Join me for the next 30 minutes or so and find out about several of our permanent residents. Baseball founding father Harry Wright, sporting good manufacturers Ben Scheib and Al Reach, and broadcast announcer Harry Callis. I'm Joe Lex, your host for All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories. I am a baseball fan. All my life, I've known the names Harry Wright and Ben Scheib. And I learned about Harry Callis when I moved to Philadelphia 33 years ago. When researching Ben Scheib, I encountered Al Reach and decided that I would have to include him also. Pretend this is a Ken Burns documentary, and you can see the distinguished 19th century gentlemen in their mutton chops and vested suits, or in the case of Harry Callis, a light blue blazer as I discuss their distinguished careers. Here's your bar trivia question for the month. What two sets of brothers have been inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York? Hint, three of the four are associated with Pennsylvania baseball teams. If you're a real Pennsylvania baseball fan, you probably came up with Paul and Lloyd Weiner of the Pittsburgh Pirates. Paul played with them from 1926 to 1945 and was elected in 1952. Lloyd played for them from 1927 to 1947. He was elected in 1967. The other two, I admit, are a bit tougher. George Wright, born in 1847 in Yonkers, New York, was a shortstop with the Cincinnati Red Stockings in 1869, the first fully professional team, and he was the best player in the game. He then played for the Boston Red Stockings before moving to the business side of baseball. He was elected to the Hall of Fame in 1937. But George's brother, William Henry Harry Wright, older by 12 years and born in England, was his manager and center fielder on that team. It was Harry's innovations, as much as his playing and managing, that got him elected to the Hall of Fame in 1953. Harry Wright is buried at West Laurel Hill Cemetery with a handsome statue at the site describing him as, quote, the father of baseball. Overstatement? Well, let's take a look. There is no doubt that Harry Wright was one of the most important contributors to the beginning of baseball in the 19th century. 
the eldest of five children. He came to America from England with his parents in 1836, the year that Laurel Hill Cemetery was founded, at age one. His father Samuel brought his family to the New World on the promise of a spot on Manhattan's St. George's Dragon Slayers cricket team, considered the best in the country. In 1850, at the age of 14, Harry dropped out of school to apprentice at Tiffany's, a jewelry manufacturer, playing cricket in the mornings and during free time. At the age of 15, he joined his father playing cricket at St. George's. But in 1858, he saw his first baseball game and switched to the game immediately. He and brother George quickly excelled. They were regarded by the New York Dispatch as, quote, the best exponents of batting as a science in the country, end quote. That year, he joined the New York Knickerbockers and participated in the heralded fashion course matches that first charged money for admittance. In 1863, he became the first player to openly receive money for a game when a benefit was held by the Knickerbockers for him, his father, and others. Harry, the only one to make money from the benefit, received $29.65. He continued to play both cricket and baseball, and in 1865 accepted a position as a professional cricketer in Cincinnati, during which time he was approached to join the Cincinnati Baseball Club. Wright would serve as captain of the team and was the team's best pitcher and hitter. He was the only pitcher in the game to be able to change speeds with his pitches, which helped introduce more ground balls and pop-ups into the game. This led to the need for stronger defense. In 1869, the year that West Laurel Hill Cemetery was founded, he began to sign baseball players and create a first, an openly paid professional baseball team. The Cincinnati Red Stockings, organized, managed, and captained by Harry Wright, became the first fully professional baseball team in history. He recruited for and managed the Boston Red Stockings in 1871 in the newly formed National Association. He was involved in the foundation of the National League and served as the league's first secretary in 1875. He went on to manage the Boston Red Caps, the Providence Grays, and finally the Philadelphia Quakers and Phillies. During his time in Philadelphia, Wright found himself in constant contention with Philly's founder and owner, Al Reach, who's also buried at West Laurel Hill. We will hear more about him when we talk about Ben Scheib. Throughout Harry Wright's career, he would introduce many innovations, including the farm system, spring training, then known as the Southern Tour, during the six weeks prior to the beginning of the season, double headers, pre-game batting practice, the uniforms of knee-length pants and stockings, the double steel, fielders backing up one another, and the defensive shifts depending on who was batting. All of these things that we now take for granted did not exist before Harry Wright. In 23 seasons of managing in the National Association and National League, Wright's teams won six league championships and finished second on three other occasions, but they never finished lower than sixth. Wright finished his managerial career with 1,225 wins and 885 losses for a 581 winning percentage. His wins rank him 43rd on the all-time list, and his win percentage 
ranks him 12th. His most important contribution, however, was the introduction of professionalism to the game of baseball. He died of a lung ailment in Atlantic City, just short of his 60th birthday in 1895. To honor his memory, the National League held a Harry Wright Day on April 13, 1896, from which all proceeds went towards building the memorial upon Wright's gravesite. Sports writer Henry Chadwick cried, No death among the professional fraternity has occurred which elicited such painful regret. It is difficult to find someone in baseball today to whom he can be compared. There is no doubt that his contemporaries revered Wright for his professionalism, his high ethical standards, and his contributions to the game. In 1999, the Society for American Baseball Research revealed a vote of its members that rated Wright as the third greatest contributor to 19th century baseball, behind Henry Chadwick and Albert Spaulding. More about Spaulding in a minute. Wright was elected to the National Baseball Hall of Fame in 1953 as a pioneer by the Veterans Committee. Harry Wright, the father of baseball, in the Green Lawn section of West Laurel Hill Cemetery, just across the parking lot from the bell tower. It's pretty clear you're from Philadelphia when your name is Benjamin Franklin Scheib. Ben was born in 1838 on Girard Avenue, and he grew up poor. He was also handicapped by a childhood accident that required him to wear a steel brace on his leg. He was poorly educated, and he worked as a conductor on a Philadelphia horse car and in a leather novelty shop where he made things such as whips, belts, and leather watch fobs. When the Army of Northern Virginia briefly entered Pennsylvania at Gettysburg in July 1863, Scheib answered the call for emergency volunteers to protect the city and joined the Pennsylvania 51st Infantry Regiment despite the leg brace, but he was mustered out in September 1863. By 1870, Ben was a conductor on the Philadelphia City Railroad. With baseball's popularity on the rise following the end of the Civil War, Scheib joined his brother John and nephew Dan, who had worked for a company that made cricket balls. They founded John D. Scheib and Company, which made baseballs. Their company supplied others, such as Reach and Johnson. Alfred James Reach had been born in London in 1840, and like Harry Wright, took up baseball over cricket in the United States playing five years with the first edition of the Philadelphia Athletics. Al Reach opened a sporting goods store in 1874. In 1883, Al Reach and attorney John Rogers won an expansion National League franchise for Philadelphia, one of what is now known as the Classic Eight of the National League. They were awarded a spot to replace the Wooster Ruby Legs, a franchise that had folded the year before. The new team was nicknamed the Quakers, or Philadelphians, and immediately compiled a 173 winning percentage, which is still the worst in franchise history. As an aside, there is a former member of the Ruby Legs buried in an unmarked grave at Laurel Hill Cemetery. In addition to being partners, Reach and Scheib became friends, and by 1882 they had formed a new company, eventually which became A.J. Reach and Company. But they left the retailing part behind and concentrated on manufacturing. 
Reach added a large factory on Tulip Street in Fishtown, where he eventually employed more than 1,000 people. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, the Reach factory was making 1.3 million baseballs and 100,000 bats per year, and it was the largest manufacturer of sporting goods in the United States. Although he sold out to A.J. Spaulding, the official American League baseball carried Reach's name on it until the mid-1970s, while the National League baseballs were labeled Spaulding. Reach was also known for publishing an annual baseball guide, the Reach Guide, which was one of the most important sources of information on baseball in the first four decades of the 20th century. It eventually merged with the Spalding Guide before being replaced by the Sporting News Guide. Reach died at age 87 in 1927 and is buried in the Franconia section, lot 54, at West Laurel Hill Cemetery. There is a historical plaque in his honor at 1820 Chestnut Street in Center City. Ben Scheib was not only concerned with manufacturing, but he directed the Scheib semi-professional team, which produced many professional players. During the 1880s, he became principal stockholder in the Philadelphia Athletic Club of the American Association. He made many investments in teams that would never produce a penny of profit, although the publicity generated by those teams certainly didn't hurt his sporting goods business. Baseball magazine writer F.C. Lane wrote in 1912, Mr. Scheib was actuated solely by loyalty for baseball as the greatest of sports and not through any mercenary motives. The company that Scheib helped to build was also critical to baseball's development in the late 19th century. Scheib eventually discovered that the nature of a spherical baseball required the stitches to be grouped closer together at the end of the S to be even with those at the waist in a decreasing space of separation. In 116 stitches, it worked perfectly, and it was patented in 1889. In 1901, the new American League gave its Philadelphia franchise to Connie Mack, in order to compete with the established National League Philadelphia franchise, now simply known as the Phillies, Mack needed a local backer who would give the newcomers instant credibility and prestige. He also needed capital. Ben Scheib was just the right man, but his partner Al Reach was a minority stockholder in the Phillies, and Mack made it clear he intended to raid the Phillies for players. So Scheib hesitated to invest in the team. But he also believed that a second major league was good for baseball. Reach felt the same way, and at his suggestion, Scheib agreed to buy no more and no less than 50% of the club. Trusting in Mac's able leadership, Scheib's franchise captured six American League pennants and three world championships during his 21 years as team president. Ben Scheib is probably best known for building the first steel and concrete stadium, known as Scheib Park. After growing weary of Columbia Park, which is now an empty lot at 2900 Cecil B. Moore Avenue, he could scarcely hold 10,000 fans. Scheib constructed his new grounds in what was then the northern outskirts of Philadelphia, about four miles north of Independence Hall at the corner of Lehigh and 21st Streets. Designed in the French Renaissance style, the exterior featured terracotta brickwork, a dark green slate roof, and a grand rotunda at the main entrance. Universally hailed 
at its 1909 opening as the greatest ballpark ever built, the 23,000-seat baseball palace cost $500,000, according to some reports, 300000 according to others. The next year, Scheib made arguably his biggest contribution to the game with his company's invention of the cork-centered baseball. The livelier baseball, introduced in the 1910 World Series and used in all games beginning in 1911, led to an offensive explosion extending singles to doubles and doubles to triples. Scheib might be remembered for his innovation, but his players remembered him for his generosity. Scheib was always known to take care of the ballplayers who helped his club to success. His kindness was one of his most attractive characteristics. Even when the American and National Leagues were feuding, Scheib tried to put the squabbles aside for the good of the game. He proved this in 1903 when the Philadelphia Phillies needed their ballpark repaired. Scheib had no qualms with the club playing on the athletics grounds. Scheib's life took a turn for the worse on August 21, 1920, when he was in a terrible car accident. He never fully recovered from the accident and died in Philadelphia on January 14, 1922, nine days shy of his 84th birthday. He is buried in West Laurel Hill Cemetery in the Bryn Mawr section, lot 440. Scheib Park stood five blocks west, corner to corner, from the Baker Bowl, the Phillies' home from 1887 to 1938. The stadium hosted eight World Series and two Major League Baseball All-Star Games in 1943 and 1952. In May 1939, it was the site of the first night game played in the American League. The National Football League's Philadelphia Eagles moved to Scheib Park in 1940 and played their home games at the stadium through 1957. In 1953, the name changed to Connie Mack Stadium in honor of the A's longtime manager. In 1971, the Phillies moved to Veterans Stadium in South Philadelphia, and the long, slow decay of Scheib Park began, culminating in its demolition in 1976. The property was bought by Deliverance Evangelistic Church, a non-denominational evangelical Christian congregation, and a new church rose in 1991. The architect had a sense of history and, I think, a sense of humor. As you drive by the church on Lehigh Avenue, you would swear that you're driving past a baseball stadium. If you don't believe me, make the trek yourself. I grew up thinking of baseball as a radio sport. In the south suburbs of Chicago, I would catch both White Sox and Cubs games on my little transistor radio. I would occasionally watch a game on television, but baseball seemed like a game that should be listened to. Currently, I gave up my television about 15 years ago. I don't miss it a bit. So when my Cubs finally reached the World Series in 2016, I went back to childhood. I listened to the games on streaming radio. I heard the final out and the celebration along with thousands of Cubs loyalists around the world. Each team had its voice. For the Cubs, it was Jack Brickhouse. For the Dodgers, Vin Scully. The Philadelphia Phillies and Athletics for many years had Byram Baisam, who died in 2000 and is buried in West Conshohocken. Sam actually took classes to learn the Philadelphia accent. But the voice most people today associate with the Phillies is that of Harry Callis who spent more than 37 years announcing their games 
and died with his boots on, so to speak, preparing to announce a game in Washington, D.C. in April 2009. Callis was also the voice of the National Football League films for more than 30 years. And I was surprised a few years ago on a visit to St. Louis when I recognized his distinct sound as the voice of the St. Louis Arch. He is in the Philadelphia Sports Hall of Fame for his years of dedicated service. There are lots of anecdotes about Harry Callis. His love of his light blue blazer and his eternal optimism expressed through the song High Hopes. While searching for information about a story I once heard, I instead stumbled on the blog of someone who worked with Harry while he was broadcasting out of Hawaii in the early 1960s. I emailed the author, and I got permission to tell this story as it is written, but he requested that I eliminate his name. With that in mind, I present to you a story about... Foul balls, fistfights, and stray dogs. This was posted December 29th, 2013. Back in the 60s, the Hawaii Islanders were a big deal in Honolulu. A lot of former big leaguers either played for Hawaii or came to town with visiting teams. Don Larson, Mo Drabowski, Hector Lopez, Gene Fries, Don Budden, Diego Segui. Weeknight crowds averaged two to 3,000, and two or three times that many people would show up for games on weekends. Both home and away games were broadcast on the radio, with the late, great Harry Callis doing the play-by-play. I was the sidekick who read commercials, gave scores of big league games, and occasionally took over for an inning or two to give Harry a breather. Of course, there was no budget to send us on those extended road trips, so the away games were recreated in the studios of radio station KORL. Harry did play-by-play on the recreates, of course, while my job was to call a local contact wherever the Islanders were playing to get a recap of the game. Usually it was a sports writer for the local newspaper who would not only have attended the game, but scored it as well and could tell us what happened batter by batter. My first call would usually be at the end of the sixth inning of the actual game. I would jot down the bare-bones information, then type it up for Harry. Islanders, top fifth. Katir grounds out short to first. Valentine doubles to right. Hertz pops to catcher, foul. Hartman strikes out. That was usually all Harry had to work with when we went on the air, and he would invent all the details. For instance, on Fred Valentine's double, he might have described it as a hard ground ball down the right field line or as a long fly ball that just missed being a home run. All we knew for sure was that Valentine hit the ball and ended up at second base. A studio engineer sitting at a control panel on the other side of a plate glass window generated pre-recorded crowd noise, taking his cues from Harry's gestures. Harry himself provided one of the sound effects. He would tap a pencil on a block of wood for the sound of bat hitting ball. Freeze swings and lifts a high fly ball into left field. 
I'd stand in the corner of the little studio, cut my hands over my mouth, and assume the role of public address announcer. The batter, number 15, third baseman, Dave Hertz. We got to be pretty good at it. Harry was stopped on the street occasionally by someone who would say, Hey, I thought you were in Tacoma. About the time Harry got to the fifth inning, I'd make the second call to get whatever happened during the final two or three innings. One night, the team was in Fort Worth, I think. The game had ended quickly, and our sports writer had already left the ballpark. I tried his office, and he wasn't there. No one answered his home phone. I gestured the bad news to Harry and went back to the phones, this time trying to find someone, anyone, who had been to the game and had filled out a score sheet. In the meantime, Harry was starting to slow things down. Every batter worked the count to three and two and fouled off several pitches. Catchers began going to the mound for conferences with their pitchers. Long conferences. And then, with just a half inning of material left, Harry began to get inventive. A dog ran onto the field and eluded the grounds crew for at least two minutes. The engineer provided thunderous applause when the imaginary dog was finally caught. An altercation among some rowdy fans behind the Hawaii dugout bought Harry a few more precious minutes. And then the weather suddenly turned ominous, prompting a lengthy discussion between the umpires and the head groundskeeper. At that very moment, somewhere back in Fort Worth, our missing sports writer opened the door to his apartment and heard his telephone ringing. Instantly realizing what had happened, he grabbed the phone just as I was about to hang up. Thankfully, he had his scorebook with him. I scribbled down what had happened in the final two innings, and the recreated action resumed, although at a comparatively brisk pace. After the final sign-off, and in recapping what had happened, I realized that while I was on the verge of panic, Harry had been enjoying every minute. A pro from the very beginning. Harry, my boy, it was fun and a privilege. Thanks again to the author for letting me tell that story. I offered him an opportunity to visit Harry's gravesite up close, should he ever make it to Philadelphia. Harry Callis does have one of the best seats in the house. He's in section S86, overlooking the Schuylkill River. His marker is in the shape of a microphone and easily visible from Kelly Drive. And take your time when you visit. There are seats from the old Veterans Stadium to provide you comfort. you enjoyed our play ball tour of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill cemeteries. There are many famous sports people buried in both places, including Hobie Baker, the only person in both the College Football Hall of Fame and the Hockey Hall of Fame. 
who went down with his plane at the end of World War I and is buried at West Laurel Hills Rockland 12 section. Tennis Hall of Famer Clarence Clark, buried in West Laurel Hills River 121 section, and William Garrison Billy Weirt, one of the organizers of Baseball Writers Association, buried in West Laurel Hill, Bryn Mawr, 604 section. Next time in the December edition of All Bones Considered, it's the Lady Artists, Alice Barber Stevens, Cecilia Bowe, and Harriet Freshmuth, two painters and a sculptor renowned in their day, but now mostly forgotten. Laurel Hill Cemetery is located at 3822 Ridge Avenue in the East Falls section of Philadelphia, just a block from the SEPTA 61 bus stop at Ridge and Allegheny. Admission is free, as is parking in the lot across the street. West Laurel Hill Cemetery is at 225 Belmont Avenue in Balakinwood, with parking available at the main entrance and at the bell tower. Both Laurel Hills are open from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. from May to October and 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. November through April. You can wander on your own or take one of more than 100 guided tours given by knowledgeable volunteer guides every year or download the app for both cemeteries and chart your way across the property. Find out more at www.thelaurelhillcemetery.org or www.westlaurelhill.com. Once you've fallen in love with these hot spots, become a friend of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill, and you have the opportunity for several members-only special tours conducted each year. They may be cemeteries, but they are a couple of the liveliest spots in town. I'm Joe Lex, reminding you to keep body and soul together until next time on All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories where the plot thickens. My primary reference for Harry Wright was a long essay by Christopher Devine, written for the Society for American Baseball Research, Sabre. And it was turned into a full biography, Harry Wright, the Father of Professional Baseball, published in 2003. For more on Benjamin Franklin Scheib and Al Reach, I recommend the book To Everything a Season, Scheib Park and Urban Philadelphia, 1909-1976, by Bruce Kuklick. That was published in 1991. There's also a marvelous 2018 blog post from the Free Library of Philadelphia called A History Minute, The Fortunes of Philadelphia, Let's Play Ball, by Sally F., and if you're into Philadelphia history, check out any of a few dozen blog posts by that same Sally F. She is a marvelous writer. The Harry Callis story came from a blogger who asked to stay anonymous, although the same story is repeated almost word for word in the book Harry the K, The Remarkable Life of Harry Callis, published by Randy Miller in 2010.